Well, hey, friends, great to be back with you all today. As I mentioned a week or so ago, I was in Guatemala with a small team of staff and lay leaders here from Grace. We were spending time with some, the, the Potter's House, a mission agency that we've been working alongside for several years there in Guatemala. Now, Potter's House, Potter House's mission is to the materially poor uh, there in Guatemala, beginning in Guatemala City. In particular, they serve the garbage community, uh, the families, men, women, and children who make a living by scavenging through the city dump in search of recyclables, of anything they might use to provide for themselves and for their families. Potter's House mission is to help the members of this community see themselves as God sees them, not as trash, but as treasures. And they've been faithfully doing that work there in Guatemala City and now beginning to expand to other parts of the country as well. We were able to visit their new work in a city called Chiquimula, several hours away on the other side of the mountains. We had an opportunity to gather and pray over some land that has recently been purchased and will be the site of their new community center in that garbage community there in Chiquimula. And as the, as the wind blew across that open land, we prayed for the wind of God's Spirit to breathe new life, la vida nueva, into that community there. So it's a tremendous work that's going on there. I'll actually come back to it at the end of the message here today. But I do want to encourage you, those of you who give to God's work through grace, your gifts go to help support ministries like this, doing so much good in Jesus' name all over the world. But as we get started with our message here today, I'm thinking about the 50-some children that we're dedicating across many of our campuses today. That's right, I said 50-some children. Uh, Turns out 20 of them are on the Wilmington campus alone. I don't know what Pastor Tom is preaching up there, but (laughs) they are taking church growth very seriously up there, so that's exciting. It's always a great moment when we bring children before the Lord, because every time we're reminding ourselves of the potential that resides in every one of these little lives, each one made in God's image, each one uniquely shaped by God to reflect his glory in the world and be about his work in this world in a way no other human being can. And they are designed to do that not just for their life here on earth, but for all eternity. I mean, talk about a destiny. And we pray into that destiny every time we bring children before the Lord. Bless these children, we say, physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Open their hearts to know and follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and to grow into the men and women that you've designed them to be. It's a moment that's full of promise for those children, for their families, for this church, and even for the world. But even as we pray that prayer, we realize that these children have been born into a broken world, into a world that is full of sickness and sorrow, of pain and suffering, of poverty and corruption and injustice of all sorts. And we know that sooner or later, their lives will be touched by that brokenness. They'll get sick. They'll get hurt. They'll struggle. Sometimes they'll fail. They'll get bruised and bullied and even betrayed in all kinds of ways. 
sometimes by strangers, sometimes by people they thought they could trust, and sometimes by the broken systems of this world. I came across a very disturbing story in last Sunday's New York Times, revealing that black mothers and babies in America are dying at twice the rate of white mothers and babies in this country. And it's not because of genetics or physiology. It's simply the cumulative stresses and inequities of living as a black woman in America today. Now, there's something broken, terribly broken about that. But that brokenness and more is the is what our children are being born into in all kinds of ways all throughout our culture. So we do our best as parents, as grandparents, as faith parents, we do our best to to provide for these children, to protect them for as long as they're under our care. But sooner or later, we have to release them out into that broken world, the same broken world that you and I live in every day. So how can we prepare them for it? What can we do for them? What can we do for ourselves so that even in a broken world, we can become the people we were meant to be and live the lives God created us to live? Those are the questions we're exploring in this series that we're calling Unbroken. We're discovering together how God can meet us in our brokenness and put our lives back together in ways that make us even more beautiful and useful than we were before. A couple of weeks ago, we learned that we are like clay pots, like jars of clay. We get chipped and cracked and broken easily. But God, the master artist, is able to put those pieces back together again and to fill us with his presence so that we can dispense it to the world. Last week, we talked about suffering. And we learned that even in our suffering, God can comfort us, not just comfort us, but enable us to go out and comfort the world around us as well. And today, we're going to talk about failure, about our flaws and our fallenness, and how God can meet us in those moments as well. So let's turn again to the letter that we're studying this spring. It's a letter we call 2 Corinthians. It was written by the Apostle Paul to some Christian friends in the city of Corinth. And it was written at a time when Paul was experiencing a season of struggle and hardship and even what looked like failure at times. So we're going to jump in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and look at a few verses. It's going to become clear as we read that we're jumping into the middle of a conversation. So we're going to have to back up a little and unpack it to understand everything that's going on here. So I just want you to prepare yourselves. You're going to get a history lesson, a theology lesson, a psychology lesson, a parenting lesson, and who knows what else in the next minutes or so. So hang on. All right, here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, for only in Christ is it taken away. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we all who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, which is the Spirit. If you're scratching your head over a few of those references, that's okay, because we do have a little bit of explaining to do. But I want, I want us to notice right from the beginning is that this passage begins and ends with hope. Therefore, Paul says, since we have such a hope, we are bold. So even in the face of a broken world, Paul has hope for his friends in Corinth. He has hope for these children that we're dedicating today. He has hope for all of us. And he finishes this section with one of the most beautiful and hopeful verses in all the New Testament, describing how we, with unveiled faces, reflect the Lord's glory, all of which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, we're going to have to do some work to understand exactly what's going on there. And to do that, we're going to climb into a time machine and go back 3,500 years to the days of Moses. 1,500 years before Paul wrote this letter. And get a little context for what's happening here. Now, you'll remember that Moses was called by God to lead the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt and into the Promised Land. Well, no sooner had they escaped Pharaoh's army that they found themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai in the wilderness between Egypt and Israel. And God summoned Moses to the top of that mountain, shrouded in smoke and darkness. And for 40 days, Moses spent time in the presence of God on that mountain as the people waited down below. And while he was there, Moses received from God the commandments for how God wanted his people to live in this land he was going to, they were going to possess. And those commandments, all of them, could be summarized, could be captured in 10 words. Now, we call them the 10 commandments, but really they're known as the 10 words. And Moses received those 10 words, and he received them etched in stone. Now, it turns out that stone tablets were a common way that kings would issue royal decrees in those days, proclamations and edicts. Instead of just writing the edict in pen and ink on a piece of papyri, those words would be chiseled into stone as a way of capturing and symbolizing the, the permanence, the gravitas of these words. Now, depending on which movies you've watched and which cartoons you've looked at and what flannel graphs you've looked at, you probably imagine these stone tablets as big things that Charlton Heston needs two arms to carry around with him. The truth is, those stone tablets typically were about the size of a piece of paper or a laptop computer. So smaller than we'd imagine, but heavier than you'd want to carry around in your backpack all day long, especially two of them. Now, after the first service, someone pointed out to me a little bit of theology that I had completely missed. Moses was the first person to use a laptop, a tablet, rather, to download data from the cloud. <laughs> Come on. I really wish I had thought of that, but that's not a bad line. So those tablets and the 10 words on them represented the covenant, the agreement between God and his people. That covenant was very simple. 
If the people would simply live God's way, if they would keep his commands, then he would bless them with health and peace and prosperity and long life in the land that he was going to give them. Very simple. And what I want us to notice is that these commands, they, they weren't just arbitrary. They weren't unreasonable commands. They weren't just rules for the sake of rules. Thou shalt not have fun. No, it wasn't that. These were just simple ways of living that would be good for them and good for their neighbors. Simple things. Worship God. Take a day off once a week. Honor your parents. Tell the truth. Be faithful to your spouse. Don't take what isn't yours. Be content with what you have. Very simple ways of living that would make life good for them and for their neighbors. And so when those 40 days were over, Moses was coming down from the mountain, carrying with him those tablets with the covenant. But as he got to the bottom of the mountain, he realized, he discovered that while he'd been up on the mountain, the people had lost sight of God completely. They'd begun to worry about what happened to Moses. They'd become afraid to feeling and worrying that God could no longer take care of them, that maybe God had abandoned them. And so in a panic, the people had taken matters into their own hands and fashioned for themselves another God, a golden calf. And they were already worshiping it and celebrating it in all kinds of unseemly ways. And when Moses saw it, he wasn't just disappointed, he was ticked off. After all he'd done, after all had God had done, after all they'd been through, they couldn't even keep it together for 40 days to wait on God to deliver. So Exodus 32 tells us what Moses did. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. Now Moses went on to say and do some other things to let the people know just how angry he and God were with them. But the most symbolic thing he did, the most dramatic thing he did, was the smashing of those tablets. Because it was symbolic of what the people had done. They had broken the covenant. And as a result, a plague fell on the camp. Thousands died. Because that's what happened when you, when you cut yourself off from the source of life. life. People die. And so it could have been much worse. But Moses interceded for the people. He went back up that mountain and interceded, asking God to have mercy on his people. And God did. He spared them. He even gave Moses a new set of stone tablets, a way of reestablishing the covenant, inviting people back into relationship with him. And as Moses came down from the mountain the second time, his face was radiant with the presence of God. So radiant, in fact, that the people were afraid. Afraid that the glory of God would overwhelm them. They were so ashamed of what they had done. They said to Moses, please, put a veil over your face because the glory of God is too much for us. We are not worthy of it. And so Moses would put a veil over his face until the glory faded. So that's the backstory 
behind these words that we're reading here that I hope helps us make some sense out of it. And I know that's a lot of ground to cover, but we sort of need to understand it to get a sense of what's happening here. See, what happened there at Mount Sinai was predictive. It would happen again and again and again and again in the years and generations to come. People in all kinds of ways, large and small, knowing and unknowing, people would break covenant with God. The the, the agreement they'd made to live according to his ways, they would break that agreement again and again and again. And we wonder how the people could so easily do that. How could they so quickly forget what God had told them? How could they break a command that just made all the sense in the world? We do that thing, same kind of thing all the time. We find ourselves in a situation that we're not sure what to do with and we begin to panic. We begin to worry that God might, come, might not come through for us and so we decide to take matters into our own hands. And before we know it, we're breaking one or two or three or more of those commandments. So instead of taking one day a week for worship and renewal, we figure it might be better to use that day to catch up on our work or to get some jobs done around the house or to get the kids some tutoring or some sports or some music lessons because after all, we want them to get ahead in the world. Instead of just telling the truth, we figure that we can maybe make more friends or make my money by twisting the truth just a little bit or maybe a lot. Instead of being content with what we have, we begin to think we'd be happier if we had what someone else has. Their, ha- their house, their car, their looks, their spouse. And before we know it, we're beginning to think and speak and do things that are not good for us and for the world. And every time we do that, we're not just breaking a rule. We're breaking an agreement. We're breaking a covenant with the God who made us and loves us and gave us this world to enjoy and these words to help us enjoy and live life to the full. And the sad thing is, it comes so easily to us, this breaking of the covenant. Thinking again about the children we've been dedicating here today. Those sweet, smiling innocent children that we all ooed and awed over, and rightfully so, because they are beautiful and wonderful and full of promise. But we also know it won't take those kids long to figure out that you really don't have to do what your parents say when they're not looking. And that if you have what someone else has, you can just take it. And that when you get angry, it feels good to just kind of take a swing. And that sometimes the best way to get, get out of a jam is just to tell a lie. We don't have to teach children to do those things. They just figure it out. And again, it's not because they're all wicked. It's because they're human. It's because they're broken, just as we are. And so it turns out we're not only sending our children out into a broken world, they will actually contribute to that brokenness, as we all do, as we all do. And so what happened that day at the foot of Mount Sinai was emblematic of what would happen again and again and again. And all through human history, as people in all kinds of ways break faith with God, and every time we do that, something dies inside of us. 
because that's what happens when you cut yourself off from the only source of life. So when Moses smashed those tablets on the ground, he wasn't just throwing a temper tantrum. He wasn't just letting off steam. He was making a statement. This covenant is broken. Any relationship with God that's based on us keeping the rules is doomed to fail. The covenant was broken because people were broken, and we still are. And so, a whole religious system was established as a way of maintaining this relationship with God. First, it was Moses going into the presence of God, interceding, coming back with his face radiant but veiled. The, the glory would, fail, would fade away, and he'd go back into God's presence again. Eventually, the sacrificial system was introduced. So instead of people dying for our sins, now animals would die as a reminder that when we break faith with God, we begin to die. And God would accept those sacrifices and forgive his people and restore them to relationship. And that covenant would remain in effect for 1,500 years until another leader, another intercessor named Jesus came along. And Jesus, by his sinless life, fulfilled that old covenant completely. He kept all the laws. And by his sacrificial death, he suffered the consequence of breaking all those commandments. He died in our place. And by his resurrection, he opened up the possibility of a fresh start, of new life for all those who would follow him. And so Jesus came to establish a new covenant, a better way of relating to God. And it was that new covenant that gave Paul hope. Hope for his friends in Corinth, hope for the children we've dedicated today, hope for all of us as we head out into a broken world. Now, again, I realize it's a lot of history and a lot of theology, but it's the only way to understand the beauty of what we're reading here. We have hope because we're no longer living under that old covenant, but under a new and a better one. Listen to chapter 3, verse 6. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved on letters of stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Now, just so we don't miss the goodness of what Paul is telling us here, let me put a little chart up on the screen that shows the difference between that old covenant and that new covenant. The old covenant is based on law. The new covenant is based on grace, God's undeserved favor. The old covenant was founded on Moses' work. The new covenant is founded on Christ's work on the cross. The old covenant is all about keeping rules. The new covenant is all about enjoying a relationship. The old covenant was set in stone, hard and unyielding. The new covenant is a work of the spirit, life-giving and vibrant. The, the old covenant is external, a set of rules we're supposed to measure up to. The new covenant is internal. It changes us from the inside out. 
The old covenant was incriminating. It revealed our brokenness. The new covenant is empowering. It enables us to overcome that brokenness. And finally, the old covenant led to failure because we just couldn't keep it. The new covenant is about freedom, freedom to finally be and do all that God made us to be and do. Now, does that mean the old covenant was bad? No, it just means it was temporary. It was preparatory. It was meant to point us towards God's ways and to reveal our need for God. But it was never meant to be the permanent fix. Think of it this way. If you're out for a walk in the woods in the dark, a flashlight is a wonderful thing because it shows you the way, keeps you from walking off a cliff or stepping into a swamp. But once the sun comes out, you don't need a flashlight anymore because now you can see the whole thing and enjoy the whole thing with freedom. So it is with the old and the new covenant. The old covenant was like that flashlight. It showed us the way. But once the sun has come out, it's so much better. So with that in mind, let's try to land this plane and come back to this, these remarkable verses we began with a few moments ago. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. See, in the days of Moses, the people couldn't look at God's face. They were so afraid of God's glory. They were so ashamed of what they had done. They said, put a veil over it, cover it up. But now in Christ, we don't have to be afraid anymore. We don't have to be ashamed anymore. Because we're known and we can be forgiven and we can start fresh. Christ has taken care of all of that. And so we can come to him just as we are with our faces unveiled, not hiding, not covering up anymore. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, that old hymn says. Look full in his wonderful face. And we can do that now. We can look fully and freely into the face of Jesus because he has taken care of everything for us. We don't need a veil to cover up, to hide behind. And we don't need a veil to cover and hide him. He's come and made God known to us, full of grace and truth. And when we look into his face fully and freely, we're able to begin becoming the people we were meant to be. We come to him as we are, and we begin becoming who we're meant to be. Listen again to verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, which is the Spirit. If you were here on Easter Sunday, you remember, might remember I shared an experience I had in sacred spaces during the Holy Week that we offer here at Grace. How I sat and looked at a, at a reflection of myself in a shattered mirror. So I saw myself shattered, broken, fragmented. It was a terribly unsettling and humbling experience because it reminded me that I am not always the person that I want to be. What we're learning here is that there's a better mirror to look at, the unbroken mirror of Christ himself. And when we look into the mirror of Christ, we, we not only see ourselves unbroken, we see ourselves perfected. We see ourselves as we were meant to be. 
You know those funhouse mirrors that distort your image, that make you look fat or skinny or crooked or whatever it is? This is the opposite of that. When you look into this mirror, the mirror of Christ, you look your very best, better than you ever imagined yourself to look. You look whole and well and complete when you gaze the face of Christ. And the longer you look at him, and the more deeply you look at him, and the more honestly you come before him, the more freely and fully you become the person he made you to be. Because you're made to be like him and to look like him. And so it turns out, the best thing we can do for our children is to show them Jesus. It's to point them towards him. To tell them about Jesus. To teach them about Jesus. To read stories about Jesus. To talk about Jesus. To model Jesus in the way we live. Because if they keep their eyes on him, they will follow him into the men and women they were made to be. And the best thing we can do for ourselves is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Because if we're going to help them, we need to be growing and following him as well. And again, the longer we look at him, the more closely and deeply we look at him, the more we begin to be changed on the inside. Because it turns out that Christ, the spirit of Christ, is now inside of us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now living in us and can raise us to la vida nueva, to new life as well. And so when we turn to the Lord as we truly are, we begin to become, we're free to become who we were truly meant to be. When we turn to the Lord as we truly are, without hiding, without pretending, without posturing, then we are free to become who we were truly meant to be. And that brings me back to the potter's house because this truth was driven home to me on that trip to Guatemala last week. One day we had a chance to visit the dump in Chiquimula, to spend some time with the men and women and children who were scavenging there. So we came driving up in our air-conditioned white van and our business casual clothes. And we were given bags of water to go out and visit with the scavengers and try to offer them a word of encouragement. And I don't need to tell you, we felt completely inadequate and, and heartbroken and overwhelmed by what we were seeing. We went out and we visited, and then we gathered them all together in a circle in order to, to pray for them. And someone called on me to say a few words to them and to pray for them. And I remember standing there saying, what can I possibly say? What do I have to offer these folks? And I ended up sharing with them the message of Potter's House, which is in fact the message of the gospel, that each one of them was a treasure. Not trash, but a treasure. Each one of them made in the image of God, a God who knows them and loves them, a God who wants to meet them right there in the dump, a God who is ready to come alongside and help them. It didn't feel like much, but it felt like hope. Because God was, in fact, showing up and helping them already through the ministry of Potter's House. One church, one person, one family at a time was finding assistance through the ministry of Potter's House. 
And if they could begin to see themselves as treasures and not as trash, they could begin to grow into that reality, into that truth. This little girl here was part of a family in that community. And she and her family had just been given a new outside cooking bathroom water unit that would ensure them a much healthier and stable standard of living in the years to come. It would put their family on a whole new trajectory. And what Potter's House has been able to do for that one family, they are able increasingly to do for many, many, many more and many more communities. And through our prayers and gifts and service, we get to play a small part in work like that. And Potter's House has been at it long enough now to have seen some of those childhood treasures grow up into beautiful young men and women who are following Christ and now going back to their community to tell those children that they are treasures. Now, friends, in the providence and grace of God, the children we dedicated today, most of us, will not have to overcome that kind of material brokenness. But we have our own brokenness to deal with. And we are just as needy of the transforming grace of Christ in our lives. Grace that's available to us the moment we turn to him. So as we finish, let me ask you, which covenant are you living under? The old or the new? Are you living under a covenant of law? trying hard to keep the rules, being religious when you have to, hoping to stay on good side, God's good side, hiding a bit of your brokenness from God, from the world, even from yourself? Or are you living under that new covenant, the covenant of grace, of favor, of love, of welcome, of destiny, of the Holy Spirit available to you? Like the children we dedicated today, like the people of Chikimula, you are a treasure. You, every single one of you, you are a treasure made in the image of God and destined for eternal glory. And the sooner you come to believe that, and the sooner you come to Christ just as you are, the sooner you can begin becoming the beautiful person God made you to be. In Jesus' name, let's pray. As we bow for a moment, it might be helpful to give ourselves just a moment privately to come before the Lord just as we are today. Maybe there's some brokenness on your heart in your life or maybe the life of someone you know and you'd like to simply bring it before the Lord and invite his forgiveness and his healing and his restoration and the fullness of his spirit in you or in them. So let's take a quiet moment to pray.
Thank you, Lord, for seeing and knowing us as we are and for loving us as we are. Thank you for the freedom to come before you today just as we are, to welcome your healing and forgiveness and newness of life for us and for those we love and for the world around us. Thank you for the chance to partner with ministries like Potter's House and other parts of the world, but give us grace to be agents of love and healing in the world in which we find ourselves from day to day. Pray, Lord, that your glory may rest on each of us today, that as we head out into the world around, we would radiate the presence of Christ, Christ with no veil to cover it up. Thank you for the promise of that in Jesus' name. Amen.